We're going to jump right into a time in the Word. And so do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to Daniel chapter 2. The, uh, let me tell you where that saying came from. You guys hear me say that over and over again. Uh, it actually comes from the fact that we're a portable church, and so we have met in various venues. Um, we're almost four years old now, which is weird, right? This last year kind of feels like uh, it flew by. Like, I didn't even consider it a, a, a year. Um, but we're almost four years old, and we've met in different venues along the way. And early on, we decided that we wanted um, physical Bibles that we could encourage people to open and to uh, track along with us. And so we bought a bunch of them. And then being a, a portable church, we had to put them in carts and, you know, take them with us. And then come, you know, every week we'd come and we'd put them in baskets and we'd set them out on the ground. And so we, we were, you know, doing the best that we could to kind of get them nearby. But every week we'd have to say, okay, look around by your feet and track down a Bible. And so people would kind of, you know, scurry around and look and they'd find a basket and get a Bible. So that's why I say that week by week, we really do believe in the power of the word of God to accomplish the purposes of God. And so I do encourage you to find a Bible and get with me in Daniel chapter two. We're doing a series right now. It's called Faithful Living in fearful times. We're acknowledging the cultural moment that we're all going through and the challenges, the unique challenges of the moment. Um, and we're just trying to uh, do the best that we can to navigate the moment faithfully. Now, uh, Daniel chapter 2 is long. It's 49 verses, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. Uh, I'm going to pray. I'll tell you the story, and you can read it for yourself. But let's pray first, and then we'll get right to work. Lord, we ask right now that you would please speak to us. We're grateful, God, for your word and its power. We pray, Lord, that you would please use it to help us be faithful, um, no matter how fearful the moment may be, no matter how chaotic the moment may be, help us to be your people. Help us to have a quiet confidence in you, in your goodness, in your plan, and in the salvation that you've given us in your son, Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. So the book of Daniel tells the story of Daniel and his friends. And um, during that particular period of time, the, the Israelites were overtaken by Babylon. This is chapter 1, but chapter 1 tells us that God gave uh, the holy city into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, carted off all kinds of different things. He carted off the king of the city, he carted off uh, some of the items from within the temple itself, and he carted off some nobility and some of the uh, royalty of the land. And Daniel and his friends were a part of that group that were carted off, and they were put into a training program to try to assimilate them into the Babylonian culture. They were trained in the ways of Babylon, and um, they were given new names, you know, attempting to give them this new identity, and um, they were placed in this rigorous three-year training to try to assimilate them into that culture. Then we get into chapter two, and we find out that the king of Babylon begins to have these dreams. He has a dream, and it's so unsettling to him that he can't sleep. And he begins to look at this class of individuals who are the wise people, the enchanters, the diviners, the astrologers. And he says to them, I'm having these troubling dreams. I want you to tell me what they mean. But I'm not going to tell you what the dream is in order that I can be confident that you're giving me an interpretation that is faithful and true. I want you to tell me the dream first and then tell me its meaning. 
And that group of people, they all say, you know, to the king, they say, this is, this is unreasonable. No one, no king has ever done this before. No king has ever asked us to not only interpret a dream, but to also say what the dream is in the first place. And the king was so outraged by this that he says, look, I'm just going to execute everybody in that category. All of the wise men, all of the astrologers, all of the diviners, all of these people I'm going to execute. Well, that means that Daniel and his friends are in jeopardy. They're about to lose their lives. And they have wisdom intact in this moment. And so they begin to ask, why is it that the king issued such a harsh and unreasonable decree? And then Daniel asked for permission to go to the king, to have a little bit of time to, to pray to God. But then having heard from God what the dream is and its meaning, he goes to the king and he says, King Nebuchadnezzar, here is your dream, and here's what it means. And the king is so impressed by this incredible ability of Daniel that he actually honors him. He falls down and he pays him uh, respect and honor. And, um, and Daniel gives all credit, all credit to God. And so we're looking at chapter two then, and I'm gonna show you four different observations from chapter two. And, and um, Let's get to work then. So observation number one, human ambitions are fragile. Human ambitions are fragile. So all of us kind of walk around with this idea of or ideas of if these things were to come true for us, this would be utopia. It would be heaven on earth. There are things that we begin to kind of imagine that if we could have it our way and everything were to come true the way that we want it to come true, we would be incredibly happy and satisfied. But what we find in Daniel chapter 2 is that even the most powerful people you know, on the horizon, even the most powerful of individuals can become easily agitated. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. It reads like this. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. He was having these dreams and they were terrifying to him. And the reason why they were so upsetting to him, as we'll find out, is because those dreams actually revolve around his, the, the biblical language for it is his idolatry. The things that he so badly wants and he thinks that if he could have them and maintain them that he would be happy. But he has these different ideas, these ambitions, and we're finding out how fragile they really are. The most powerful person on the horizon is saying, what I most desperately want to maintain in my life, I'm not sure that I can. His dream is that there is a statue, and that statue is impressive. That dream is him kind of reigning over his kingdom and everyone loving and respecting him. But that statue comes tumbling down, and that terrifies him. He recognizes how fragile his ambitions are. He has stuff that he really desperately wants, and we see it actually come literally true in chapter 3. He builds a monument to himself. He builds a massive statue that he tells everybody in his kingdom, you have to bow down to this statue. But here's the problem. His idolatry, his, his desire, his ambitions... He is now having dreams about them, and he's realizing, maybe that's not going to last. Maybe that's not something that I can maintain. Maybe that's something that is not going to endure forever. So we all have 
idols like Nebuchadnezzar. All of us have these things that we imagine if we were to have it come true and be able to maintain it, then we would be happy. I say this all all the time. It's kind of a way to evaluate what are your idols. But, you know, some of the questions that we might ask when we're thinking through what are the things that we worship, what are the things that we adore, what are the things that give us significance and purpose and meaning in our lives, one of the questions we might ask is, what do you daydream about? What do you daydream about? When you're just sitting there and your mind is kind of gravitating towards something and you're not really being intentional with your thoughts, but your mind is just kind of gravitating toward it, what is that thing? And a lot of times they're good things or they're important things, but they become prominent things and they become things that we worship and adore. We be, they become things that we think if we had them, that would be salvation. We would hardly use that language, but that's how we feel. But here's another question that we could ask in light of Daniel chapter 2. What keeps you up at night? What are the things right now that you wake up in the night and you just can't let go? You're thinking about it. It agitates you. It unsettles you. What are some of the things right now that you feel like this is not going the way that I hoped it would go, or this, is, this feels very tenuous, this feels like it, it's fragile and I might lose it, and we're trying to do everything that we can to manage our lives to make sure that this thing isn't threatened. What are the things that are keeping us up at night? I'm going to give you a couple different um, easy categories, uh, a couple that I think are pretty universal, universally experienced right now, and I hope I'm not getting you off the hook too easy by just kind of pointing out, well, yeah, maybe it's one of these two. Because the truth is, one of the reformers put it like this, the human heart is an idle factory. And here's what he meant by that. He meant that we are constantly inventing things, producing things that we think are really, really necessary for us. We're constantly inventing new things that we worship and new things that we try to align our lives around. But but um, it's just this reality that we pump them out. And so all of us uh, tuning in today, all of us in here, we have idols. And um, I hope I'm not making it too easy for you by suggesting these ones. All right, here's two categories that I think um, are are pretty universally experienced right now. Uh, A lot of us have political idols. Um, As you know, this is an election year, and we just finished up our polling, and uh, the results have come in, but a lot of us have these political idols, and we, we have an idea for how things ought to go, but the truth is, if it doesn't come true the way that we want, what, what do we feel like? We feel agitated. We feel unsettled. We feel like the world is coming apart. Now, no matter how you vote, that could be true of you. Um, we have these political idols that, that maybe are are causing us in this moment to lose sleep. Here's another category that I think is pretty universally experienced right now, and it's in the realm of the, the pandemic that we're going through. And um, there, there are a couple uh, ways that this could express itself, um, obviously, but I think that a lot of people right now, in light of the pandemic, are experiencing uh, the agitation of their idols. And so let me just give you uh, what it might look like for one type of person. For one type of person right now, um, the pandemic might be revealing this idol of safety and 
well-being and wanting to protect the people around you. And I'm not by any means saying that that's a bad thing to do in and of itself, but when it is causing you to lose sleep, when it is easily agitating you and you cannot get your mind off of it, and you are navigating your life right now in absolute fear and terror, that I think is revealing something at the heart level. And I'm not saying that we should be irresponsible or unsafe or anything like that. What I'm saying is that this is an opportunity for us to recognize the fragility of our idols. There are things that we think we so badly need, but the truth is they might not actually provide what we're hoping for. So that's the observation number one. Human ambitions are fragile. Nebuchadnezzar is realizing that as he's being... um, troubled and unable to sleep. Observation number two is the role that believers have in a hostile world. Chapter two of Daniel tells us believers have this incredible opportunity to reflect God in this, in, in, in this hostile time. Um, they do that in a variety of different ways, so I'm just going to point out a few of them that came uh, to me from the text. The first one is they pray. Believers, we we have an opportunity when times are hard to be people of prayer. Um, It it ought to be the thing that we do most naturally, most readily, um, but we we are a people who pray. And you see that as the story unfolds, when Daniel and his friends find out that Nebuchadnezzar is going to execute all of that category of people of which they're a part, they ask for time and they waste no time in getting on their knees. They say, we need some time. I'm going to ask that God would reveal your dream and its meaning, but I'm going to pray. So let's look at verses 17 and 18. Daniel returned to his house, and he explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. His his strategy in this moment is prayer. He gathers the team together and he says, guys, we are going to pray right now. This is what we're about. We're going to ask God to reveal the mystery of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So they pray and this way of prayer, it's obviously in this case, it's in light of this incredible circumstance, but it also is a major theme in the entire book of Daniel and it's a way of life for him and his friends. So I do want to encourage you, it's appropriate to pray right now um, in light of the pandemic, in light of the societal unrest and all these different things, be praying, but it also needs to become this habit or way of life. It becomes such a habit for Daniel that later on in in, in the book of Daniel, he prays with such regularity and faithfulness that some of his enemies look at his devotional time as an opportunity to get him in trouble. He prays three times a day in a specific place, in a specific way, and everyone knows about it. It's such a part of the way that he just navigates life that they use it as an opportunity to get him in trouble. So we need to be praying, and we need to be a praying people, making it our ambition to ask God specifically for wisdom, which is what's happening here in Daniel chapter 2. Daniel is asking God to reveal something that is unknown. He's asking for the wisdom of God. So we need to be praying, and the specific prayer request that Daniel 2 encourages us to to use is, God, would you please show us 
what you're doing. This might be unclear to the world. It might be mysterious to other people, but I'm asking you, God, to show me what you're up to. Ruth and I were just talking a few minutes ago, and she was mentioning how in her prayer experience right now, God is revealing some of those mysteries to her. That's what we ought to be doing. God, show us in this moment your wisdom. Give us your interpretation of these events. We want you to show us what you're up to. And that contrast then is the contrast between the wisdom from God and his interpretation of the events and the earthly wisdom that's available to us. Look at verses 27 and 28. It shows us that there is no earthly wisdom that can crack the case. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. What is Daniel saying there? There is something going on in the world that no expert in any field is able to discern right now. But there's a God in heaven who absolutely knows what's happening, and we're looking to him. We're appealing to him. We're trusting in him. Listen, friends, there's a wisdom right now that you're not going to find in your social media feed. No article link is going to crack the case for you. There's a wisdom right now that journalism uh, even in its best forms, cannot discern and accurately report. There's a wisdom right now that no political scientist could explain to you. There's a wisdom right now that no expert in the medical community can, can totally articulate right now. There's a wisdom that we need that we're not going to find in the world. There's a wisdom that we need for this moment that only God is able to give us. And, and, and we can rely on all of these different fields of expertise, but at the end of, end of the day, we're Christians and we say, God is the revealer of mysteries. What feels cloudy right now, what feels murky right now, what feels so unclear right now, we believe that God understands it all and that he can give us insights into the mysteries of the world in which we're living in. So we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to reveal those things to us. Show us, God what you're doing. Show us, God, the mystery that has been hidden, but you, Lord, can reveal. So believers in a hostile world, one of the things that they do is they pray, but another thing that they do is they praise. They not only ask God to reveal his, his wisdom, but they also respond to God with praise and adoration. That's what Daniel does when Daniel receives the vision and the interpretation of it. Let's look at it in verses 19 and following, it says, During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be, be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the, to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness, and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You've given me wisdom and power. You've made known to me what we've asked of you. You've made known to us the dream of the king. What does he do? He not only prays that God would give him wisdom, but having received it, now he gives credit where credit is due. He says, God, you are amazing. 
You are the revealer of mysteries. You are the sovereign ruler over human history. You are the one who reveals light because light dwells with you. So I thank you and I praise you. Christians, we ought to be people right now who are in constant prayer and constant praise, asking God for his wisdom and then responding to it with adoration for who he is and what he's up to. And we need to be people who are doing that. That needs to be the habit of our lives right now. I'm so grateful for Ellie's leadership in our campus because she has made this a priority. And we have ongoing experiences of prayer and praise with routine regularity. We've got stuff going on on Wednesday nights right now uh, where you're able to hop online and participate in um, experiences of prayer and praise. But we need to be a people who are doing that, who are saying, look, the moment calls for us to be different. There's a wisdom from God that we need, and we need to be a people who are praying to discern what that wisdom is and then responding to God appropriately. But here's the third thing, the third role of believers in hostile times. We need to participate. We do not retreat. We do not um, try to hide and just keep ourselves safe in this time. We participate redemptively. Daniel and his friends are redemptively engaged. And I tried to show that to you last week in chapter one. They are redemptively engaged. They are in a hostile environment, but they are fully participating in what they're, what they're being asked to do. Um, they are living in Babylon, but they are making the most out of it. This is something that they learned to do probably from uh, another prophet named Jeremiah. He was a contemporary during that time. He, he wrote, he lived during the same, or around the same season that the book of Daniel comes out. But Jeremiah told the people, you will be exiled. You will have to leave Jerusalem, you'll have to leave Judea, and you'll be carted off. And, and he told them this message over and over again. And then he gave them a very famous letter, he actually wrote what they should expect, those who were exiled should expect. And he wrote it in Jeremiah chapter 29. And it's actually a, a verse that when I say it, you'll go, oh yeah, I know that verse. Because we plaster it on coffee mugs and on artwork and different things. Um, but we, we often don't look at what the letter in its entirety says. Jeremiah 29, 11 talks about the plan and the purpose that God has for us plans to prosper us and not to harm us, to give us a hope and a future. But the letter actually says, you're in exile, you're going to be there 70 years, you're not going to like it, but here's what you need to do in the meantime. Settle down, build houses, plant vineyards, marry, engage in culture in this new environment that you're in, and know you're going to be there for a long time. In fact, those of you who are receiving the letter, you're not coming home. Many of you are going to, your life is going to end there in exile in Babylon. So it's telling us that there's a way to be redemptively engaged. And that's what Daniel and his friends are doing. They are being productive in this hostile moment. They're engaged in helping and blessing and serving other people. They're called to be experts and wise men in this culture. And they're offering themselves um, their skills and their giftedness that God has given to them. And it's really incredible. I, I never saw this before until I stud, uh, started studying for this sermon series. But here's what's really incredible. Daniel and his friends are loving their enemies. 
right? Nebuchadnezzar is the bad guy in this story. He's the bad guy in this story who literally took them away from their comforts, from their home, took them out of their culture that they appreciated so much, and then tried to appropriate them into a new culture. He's the one who forcibly took them away from everything that they loved and cherished and put them to work in a new environment. And in chapter two, he's also the one who says, I'm gonna kill you guys because you're not gonna do what I want you to do. So we're talking about, you know, an enemy here. And here's what's really incredible. Daniel and his friends actually demonstrate love. They don't retreat. They don't kind of resign themselves and say, look, this is just awful. Let's just kind of, you know, wait until he takes our lives. No, they engage in the culture in which they are, and they actually are a blessing. They are, at the end of chapter one, they're the best. Out of all the wise people and Chaldeans and all the, the, the group of people that the king is leaning on for support and wisdom, they actually excel. Here's my question then, how can you be the best in this moment? Engaged in culture redemptively right now? How can you be the best coworker right now? You're not, not complaining. You know, you go to work and people don't look at you and go, oh, they're just going to gripe about everything right now that's happening in society. No, 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 no. They look at you and they go, if we could hire 50 more people like you, this organization would just crush it. You're the best. We, we need to keep you around. You're the most level-headed, most productive, most industrious person. That's the kind of stuff that, that we need to be pursuing right now is loving our enemies and doing a great job at it. And we see this show up in this small little example in verse 14. Daniel had wisdom and tact. Let's look at it. It reads like this. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. Here's, here's what I think is really significant. If we're going to be redemptively engaged in the moment as Christians, we ought to be the ones who are the most compelling. Um, we, we ought to be doing things in a way that actually gains buy-in, that people, when they hear us speak, they, they, they lean in. They actually ask for your opinion because they want to know how you're managing the moment. They want to know how you're interpreting all the events of the things going on in our world right now with the pandemic and with unrest and with politics and all these different things because they look at you and they go, you have this, not, not only this wisdom about you that you must have received from God, but you have a way in which you share it that has tact, that has wisdom about it. So, so I, I hope that we could be those kinds of people. I dream of leading a church who we're just doing a great job at that. We're engaged in the moment and people are taking notice of it. And they're saying, we want these people around. We want their input. We want their help because we believe that um, they're a blessing to us. So what does that look like right now? What does it look like to be more like Daniel and his friends? What does it look like to love our enemies right now? Um, again, uh, based off of my conversations one of the areas that I think we have a lot of work to do in as Christians is in the realm of, of politics and how we handle ourselves in politics. So I'm just kind of asking the question to you so you can wrestle with it, but what would it look like for you to love your enemies in the political arena? 
What would it look like for you to be a blessing even to those who you feel like are trying to kill you? If that's, I mean, I mean some of us feel that way politically. Like we're, you know, some of us feel like it, this, you would explain it in a way where you would say, my opponent, I don't just dislike them, I fear them. So here's my question. What would it look like for you to love your enemies? I was reading this week, and I just bumped into this verse, and I thought it was worth sharing, but it, it's, it's, a, a, it's a couple verses where a pastor is writing a younger pastor, and he's saying, Here, here's one of the things you need to be doing. And I just kind of earmarked it, and I said, oh yeah, this is part of what I need to be doing right now. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and it's just kind of this way of, I think, kind of putting um, boots on the ground when we think about how do we love our enemies politically right now? Paul writes to Titus and he says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. Okay? Paul is saying, here's a pastoral task for you, young man. Remind people this is part of their Christian obligation that they ought to relate to rulers in a certain way, and it ought to actually look like respect and honor where appropriate. There ought to be this obedience and this readiness to do whatever is good, and their speech. This is the part that I think is really significant. In their speech, they better be careful with how they talk about people that they disagree with. Slander no one. So don't use your mouth to kind of tear people down and to um, to make them appear to be evil and villainous, but instead be peaceable and considerate and always gentle toward everyone. Christians, we have an, an opportunity in this moment to be different, don't we? We have an opportunity in this political moment to be incredibly different, to be peaceable, to be considerate, to be gentle toward everyone, and to show our allegiance is to the King Jesus Christ. Now, here's the outcome it shows up at the end in verses 48 and 49. When believers engage in culture in this way, look at how it plays out for Daniel. Daniel tells the dream, interprets the dream, and then this is the outcome, verses 48 and 49. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all of its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. He did such an exceptional job at this, of loving his enemy, that the king actually said, you're in charge now, and then all the friends get to come on board as well. And he says, okay, you guys are ruling over this leading class. You guys are the you're the leader of it. They're the administrators. You guys are in charge now because you have been such a blessing. But Daniel, you're staying right here because I need you. You're such a blessing to me that I don't want you going far away from me. You're going to remain at the royal court. When we are loving people well, it's going to show up because people are going to want us. They're going to say, you are such a blessing to me personally that I need you nearby. Right now in this world of chaos and uncertainty, you are such a blessing. You're such a calming force. You're such a wise individual that I just need you nearby. Christians, we have an incredible opportunity in this moment. Let's lean into it. The third observation is history. 
when we look at Daniel chapter 2, we're able to see history from God's perspective. History from God's perspective. When we kind of zoom out, which is what we get in Daniel chapter 2, when we kind of zoom out and we see things from God's perspective, it changes everything. Let's look at it in verses 37 and following. It's a little bit lengthy, but I'm going to read it to you. It goes like this. Your majesty, so this is Daniel talking to Nebuchadnezzar, and he's explaining the dream and giving its interpretation. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he's placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he's made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After that, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it, will, yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. Here's what, here's what Daniel is doing in this moment. He is explaining history from the perspective of God. You saw a vision, Nebuchadnezzar, of a statue. It had a head of gold, then its torso was made of silver, and then it had bronze, and then it had a mixture of iron and, and baked clay. And then that, that statue tumbled over because this rock displaced it. This rock came striking the feet of this statue and everything came tumbling down. And then as we'll see here in a moment, it blew away like chaff. It became dust in the wind. And so he's saying there is a way to view human history from God's perspective that is really sobering. You, Nebuchadnezzar, you're that head of gold. You have this incredible moment right now where you're leader over all that you can see. You, you have made your enemies subject to you. You have won decisive victories. You reign and you rule, and everyone looks at you, and they pay you respect and honor. But then after you, there's another kingdom. And after that, there's another kingdom. And after that, there's another kingdom, and all those kingdoms are going to dissipate when it's all said and done. Now, some people like to read the book of Daniel and try to figure out timelines, and try to figure out, you know, which kingdoms were, were being talked about, and when we can expect certain things to happen. I think there's a place for that. I think that, prof, you know, prophetic literature sometimes will give us that ability, but we need to be careful because there are books like, like the one called 88 Reasons Why the World is Going to End in 1988, and that's a very cheap book right now. Um, because it's probably not even in print anymore. But people look at books like Daniel and they go, I'm going to figure this thing out. I'm, I'm going to use, you know, the, like the Bible is like this codex machine and I'm going to figure out the, the secrets of the timeline of God. And, and I don't think that's what's going on here. I think that what this is really saying is we don't need to try to figure out exactly when things are going to happen. We just need to get this one main point. God is ruling human history. 
and kingdoms and kings come and go. In fact, that's exactly what Daniel said in his praise report in verse 21. Look at it once more. It says, he, God, changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and he raises up others. Here's what Daniel is is observing and what he's praising God for. You rule human history. Kings, rulers, authorities, presidents, they're in your hand. You're able to depose rulers, meaning put them down or put them aside, and you're able to raise them up. And all of that is your doing, God. So God is the ruler over times and seasons and over leaders. Now, that is a sobering assessment of human history, but that's what we need right now. A recognition that God, you know, in light of the the election, God didn't win or lose. God didn't win or lose this election. God rules over it. And we as believers, we we don't have to fret or, or, or overly rejoice one way or another because we have this evaluation of human history that says God is in charge and whatever season we might find ourselves in and, and however we might personally feel about it, God is Lord of all. And we can trust him in this moment and we can attempt to be faithful then in this moment. So we get this sobering assessment of human history when we look at Daniel chapter two. All right, finally, the rock. We need to look at the rock What is this rock that causes a superpower of a nation to lose sleep? What what is the rock that is so unsettling that the, the most formidable nation on the planet is unable to sleep? Let's look at this rock, verses 34 and 35. While you were watching, Nebuchadnezzar, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken into pieces and became like chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving any trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. What is this? that is causing so much anxiety for Nebuchadnezzar. What is this rock? He's seeing this vision. He's seeing, you know, his kingdom and the the subsequent kingdoms after him. And then he sees this rock. And it's described for us here. It's unhewn stone. It's untouched by any human instruments. It was not cut out by human hands. And it struck the feet of iron and clay. Over and over again in the Bible, it talks about those kinds of rocks that you know, don't have any human imprint on them. And oftentimes it's just kind of pointing to God's raw ability. He doesn't need help here. This is his rock. This is his kingdom that he is establishing. This rock, it strikes this other batch of kingdoms and they all are pulverized. They're like chaff. So uh, my brother Tyler is trying to harvest right now. Uh, The equipment has not been cooperating and so they've had to replace Um, all sorts of things on the combine, but when they get it going, he'll drive that combine out into the field, he'll cut down the corn, and it'll husk all of it, and then there's this stuff that comes out the back, it's chaff, it's dust. Um, The field behind my house, the farmer went through, 
and all the dust just kind of comes up onto my deck and onto my house, and it's there for a minute, but then the wind comes and the rain comes and it's gone. And he says, that's how the rock has that effect on these human kingdoms. They're like chaff that are going to be blown away in the wind and you won't even remember them. That's the rock that we're talking about. The rock, and it grows, it starts out small. It's almost like a seismic rock that's coming up, and it hits these rocks, and you might think, oh, this is kind of an unimpressive thing, but it, you know, it unsettled this whole statue. But then that rock, it doesn't just remain this little insignificant item. What, is, what does it say there? This rock grew into a mountain, and the mountain filled the whole earth. All right, what, what on earth are we talking about here? The rock is the kingdom of God. And though it's small and maybe seemingly insignificant as it kind of breaks into human history, you know, you were talking about 12 ordinary people, the disciples of Jesus Christ, and this guy who really didn't lead a super impressive life by human evaluations, but then, but then this kingdom begins to grow. The kingdom of the followers of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God breaking into human history. And what does it become? The most formidable thing ever. A mountain that fills the whole earth. The kingdom of God, as subtle as it might be right now, as imperceptive as it might be to try to locate it and try to find it, it's going to grow into this incredible reality. Look at verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. The rock is the kingdom of God, and specifically, it's the person of Jesus Christ. If you're looking at the statue and Daniel describes it, he says, that head of gold, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. That head of gold represents you and your kingdom. So if we look at this rock and we go, okay, well, who, whose kingdom is it? It's the kingdom of Christ. It's the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And he is coming and his kingdom is expanding and it will fill the earth. And so when we evaluate this moment, we need to observe the rock, the kingdom of Jesus Christ who will be established. It will never be destroyed and it will never be left to another person. It will endure forever. We're following King Jesus in this moment. And by doing so, that actually helps us to be incredibly engaged, to, to live in a beautiful way that actually draws people to that king. And so again, I want to invite you as believers to join me in that ambition of making King Jesus known to all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have a high calling for us in this season. And I pray, Lord, for everyone who's at the farm today and everyone who's watching online, Lord, would you help us to embrace this incredible opportunity that we have to be different. Help us to pursue your wisdom for this moment. Help us to interpret the events of human history right now in the way that you want us to, Lord, not just parroting what we're hearing from the rest of the world. And Lord, help us to be redemptively engaged, being a blessing, being the best at whatever it is you've called us to do in this season. Let that beauty overflow into the lives of other people around us and just draw them to you. 
your kingdom, God, you are setting it up in this world. You have established your king. He is seated at the right hand right now. And he scoffs, Psalm 2. He laughs at the kings and the rulers who try to minimize him. You rule and you reign. Help us to worship you right now. We want to pray and we want to praise and we want to participate. Help us to do that for your glory. Amen.